Why, hello there. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards with pureandsimplebible.com. Very thankful to have you joining me once again for a Bible study conversation. And this week we're continuing it with Brother Nathan Batty. Nathan joined me via Zencaster from his home in Indianapolis, and we did a Bible study conversation over a chapter in the book of Acts. It's chapter 12. This study was called Deja Vu in Acts 12, and it's about these patterns where it seems like there's uh, somebody comes into the story, but then they come back into the story. And last week we talked about Herod, and uh, this week we're going to get into Peter as well as kind of the heart of the story or the, the peak, as Nathan called it. So let's not waste any more time on the introduction and jump right back into that study. Now, uh, let's move into the second layer. So we've, we've had this Herodian layer to book in what's happened to Peter. And the second layer is Peter's prison saga. So let's, uh, I guess we're going in re or rewind for a bit. So Herod, before his death scene is when this one starts, right? Right. So he seizes Peter, he throws him in prison. And now we're left anticipating what will happen. Will he kill Peter like he is intending to do, or will Peter be delivered? So you pick up with the jailbreak scene, and here is a man who's on death row. Okay? Pharaoh has determined to put him to death after the Passover. He's on death row, and yet he is sleeping as sound as a baby. <laughs> in fact, this angel in bright light comes into the room I don't know how you are, Jonathan. When I sleep, if someone turns on the light, I immediately wake up. Yeah. And yet, yeah. here's an angel in bright light appearing, and he doesn't wake up. He has to be shaken to mm. get up and wake up. Mm. He's told to arise quickly. The Bible says his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to an iron gate that leads to the city, which opened of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and all the expectation of the Jewish people. Does this mean that, that Peter, was he just content with dying? Like he thought it was certain that he was about to die or was he just, uh, I'm maybe a bit perplexed by his behavior in this scene. Yeah, I, I believe Peter fully expects to die. He doesn't expect a miraculous escape. He's as good as dead and he's come to grips with that. He's come to terms. It's, it doesn't bother him. The prospect of death does not affect Peter the way it does most moderns today. Yeah. He's at calm because he knows who does reign. He's been here before. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, this is a, what a character development for him, right? Like compared yes. to the Peter in the Gospels, at the end of the Gospels especially, and now here, maybe he's getting what he wanted all along. He wanted to die with Jesus. Yes. Okay. Well, you, you've got some maybe extra flavor 
of uh, this these verses. So Acts 12, verses 5 through 11. And uh, tell us about, for example, the guards and the angel, the, the command, the gate. There, there's so many little details here that I think make the story just come alive. So first of all, they put four squads of soldiers around him. And that's really important. This is kind of like maximum security prison. They are wanting to make sure this guy does not escape, and we do put him to death because, if you remember back in chapter 3 and 4, they had once before arrested Peter, and the next day they woke up and he's back in the temple court preaching, and they don't know how he got there. Right. And, and they want to make sure that does not happen again. But again, they're not the ones in control. Mm -hmm. uh, God can do whatever he wants, and we're going to see that happen again. Uh, you have this angel appearing in bright light, which is reminiscent of the angel who appeared at the tomb of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, verses 2 through 3. The concept of an angelic figure uh, shrouded in light. In the Old Testament, that was the angel of the Lord, uh, mm. probably the second person of the Godhead. Mm -hmm. this, this is very reminiscent of that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Um, Peter is struck by him because, again, he's sleeping so soundly. And right, then he gives right. these commands to gird yourself and tie on your sandals, which is the same command that was given in the first Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, as the, the people of God were given instructions about how to observe the Passover. They must gird on their sandals and prepare themselves for travel. Yeah, you, you call this uh, the third echo of Exodus. And I know we've maybe just a few minutes ago mentioned the first ones, um, but can we review them just for our listeners? If this is the third echo of Exodus here in Acts 12, the first two were concerning Herod, right? Correct. So it's Passover time. Okay. When you hear okay. Passover, think about the first Passover. Number two, Herod is the strong-armed one, or he's the one who stretches out his hand like Pharaoh is the strong-armed one. Right. And, and now during the Passover time, you have this command to gird on your sandals, to tie them on, which is okay. exactly what was stated during the first observance of the Passover. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And, and then you've got this big old iron gate. I mean, I don't think it's one that just a person could swing open by themselves, is it? Right. This, this, there's no way Peter can open this gate by himself, but the passage emphasizes that it just opens of its own accord, and he walks out. He walks past four squadrons of soldiers, the gate magically opens, he walks out, and he doesn't even know if what he's seeing is real or not. This is, this is so incredible. It's not till he's turned down a couple side streets and the angel leaves him that he realizes this is not a dream. This is actually happening. He says, now I know for certain that the Lord has delivered me from Herod. Mm, Whereas mm. in Exodus 18, verse 4, Moses said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And so there uh, you have your fourth echo of the Exodus. That's neat. I like that. I like making these connections. And uh, so if we're taking it, you know, kind of non-linearly, we're going to skip his return to the brethren, and we're still kind of focusing on this Peter in prison, and then uh, 
what happens at the prison whenever he's not there the next day. So let's let's jump. You know, we're we're in this second layer of the prison saga, but it's a different scene. It's the next day. What what happens next? Okay. So the first layer of the scene, it points out that he has been delivered from death. That's a really important concept we'll talk about later on. But then in verses 18 and 19, the Bible says, as soon as it was day. So this is very early morning. First thing, there's no small stir amongst the soldiers, which means this was a big deal, as to what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down to Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So very first thing, it's discovered in the morning, Peter's gone. Right. There's this massive investigation that takes place to find out how did he escape. Mm. And to avoid embarrassment, they take the soldiers who had fallen asleep on the job by no fault of their own, and they put them to death. Mm. This mm. is very similar to another occasion, but we'll hold off on that. Okay. And and you, you make this point at the bottom that, you know, they, they were trying to do this to avoid the awkwardness of Acts 3 and 4, but really they've kind of made it awkward because now it's going to be a public record, right? right? Right. This is an official investigation that has happened. It's public record. And we know that it happened because they're putting soldiers to death now. Yeah, so they can't just cover it up. Right. Uh, maybe like with Jesus' death, you know, they, they tried to just pay him off and... Yes. And uh, get rid of the evidence. So uh, we've we've talked about the the Herod layer and then we've talked about the prison layer. And now it's time for that third layer. And in your notes, you call it the pinnacle. And and I liked it's it's making me think of the example you shared earlier about climbing up a mountain. It's like we we're, we've reached the peak. Mm-hmm. And um so what is the, the pinnacle or the peak of Acts 12? And, you know, what, what should I be taking away from this section? So everything in the story has been driving up to this point, and everything will retreat from it as we, we go back down the mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the way that the Bible is emphasizing this is the point of the story. Don't miss what's going on here. And so I'd encourage us to pay attention to that and to kind of heed the implicit biblical warning that okay. we're given there. So I'll just read the passage, Acts 12, verse 12 through 17. Okay. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. As Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it's his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. So we have several key elements that take place in this passage, and I want to deal with kind of what we might call the, the less significant first. Okay. So first of all, this it points out that this happens at the house of Mary, the mother of 
John or Mark as we know him. And, and is, is this a different Mary than Mary, the mother of Jesus? Yes, this is a different Mary. Uh, there's three or four different Marys in the gospel. I think there's right. four different ones. Right. Uh, this is identified as Mark's mother, which okay. Peter is, I mean, not Peter, the writer is introducing Mark on this occasion in kind of an insignificant role, and we'll come back to him later on, and we'll know who he is ahead of time. Um, he does the same thing with James in this passage. Peter tells him to go tell James, the brother of the Lord, and the, the others. So, why, why does he do that? Why does he introduce them in such an insignificant way? This is, I, I don't know other than it's kind of a stylistic feature of Luke. He'll introduce a character so we know where he came from, so to speak, and then later on, he gets center spotlight or a major focus in the spotlight. Um, for instance, Stephen and Philip are introduced when they're appointed to serve the apostles and the, the widows in particular. And then later on, both those guys have a whole chapter to themselves. Oh, that's right. That's right. And and so Mark, uh, as you mentioned, this is just a brief point here in Acts 12, but he's going to have a bigger role later in the book of Acts. Right, traveling with Paul and Barnabas. Okay. And eventually writing one of the Gospels. Um, That's true, yeah. James, this seems like an insignificant role here, but in chapter 15, he's one of the main leaders in Jerusalem that's going to help clear up uh, some major controversy that faced the early church. And is this the same James who's going to write the epistle that we have in the New Testament? I believe so, yes. Okay. Well, that's fascinating, you know, that there's these minor points about these pretty major characters. Um, but you said we're starting with the lesser and we're we're working towards the more important. So if we don't get bogged down in these little details, what's, you know, the, the more important that we should be taking away? So he Peter knows where to go when he realizes this isn't a dream and he's free. He goes to Mary's house where he knows the brethren are gathered together praying for him. What's interesting is you have the church gathered praying, but they don't have any faith that their prayer is going to be answered. And while they're having this prayer service, Peter shows up and he starts knocking on the door. They send Rhoda, the servant girl, to answer the door. And when she sees Peter, she's so shocked, she doesn't open the gate. She runs back in and tells the disciples that he's here. Uh, we, we've been praying for him, and he, he, he's standing at the door. And the disciples are so sure their prayer will not be answered, they say, no, you're beside yourself. And she says, no, no, I have seen him. He's there. And so finally they say, well, must be his angel. Mm. Now, that's kind of an odd statement mm. regarding the circumstance, and uh, it's caused puzzles as to why, why are they saying this is his angel. There, there's a couple explanations possible. In Psalm 104, verse 4, the Bible says, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. Hmm. So you have this angel-spirit interaction. It could be that when they say it's his angel, they're, they're saying it is his spirit. Or yeah. in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, the Bible says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. I believe the point that the Lord's making there is that a child, whenever a child dies, there's no question about their eternal destiny. Their angel or their spirit goes right before the face of God, mm-hmm. and they are secure. I think both Psalm 104 and Matthew 18 are making the same spirit-angel connection here. But I'll say this, whenever they say it's his angel, they mean by that that Peter is a dead. Ah, okay. We've been praying. Now you think you've seen him. The fact that you're seeing his angel or spirit is because he's dead. And they're resolved that it's over now. And yet, somebody keeps knocking. And though they won't believe the eyewitness testimony of Rhoda, they can't ignore the knocking. They go and open the door, and lo and behold, there's Peter. And they're astonished, and he tells them to be quiet, to go tell James and the others. Mm, so that, that means the apostles aren't with this group presently, is that? Correct. Okay. Not, at least not all of them. Now, I have a silly question. We'll see if it makes the cut. Um, but I'm curious about why they they wouldn't believe Rhoda if uh, Peter's ghost is able to knock on the door. Is part of their maybe um, superstitious beliefs about the afterlife, it would seem like a ghost couldn't make a knocking sound. Well, I don't, I don't think it necessarily has to be a ghost in their mind that's making the knocking sound. They could think it was the neighbor or somebody. Somebody's knocking. Oh, okay. When you open the door, you're so delirious with grief, you're seeing Peter. And that's just possibility. Okay. okay. And when she doubles down and says, no, I have seen Peter, well, they have to come up with a different explanation for what she's seen. Yeah. And now they're going to have to answer, well, what is going on at the door? Yeah. And so... They open up, and lo and behold, she was right. Yeah, and and with with him being alive, they bring him in. Does it transition into this closing scene, or does the closing scene kind of stand on its own? The closing scene stands on its own. Oh, okay. Okay, so okay. we've reached the peak, and Peter has appeared to the disciples. They're all excited. He tells them, be quiet, go tell the others what they've seen. And then the story begins to retreat down the mountain. Now we have the investigation of the the prison saga, the prison state, and then we have the death of Herod. And so Mm -hmm. it's interesting. This is clearly the climactic moment. He appears to the brethren. He wants all the brethren to know, and that's it. And you're sitting there scratching your head, and you're thinking, okay, verse 24 and 25 says, but the word of the Lord grew and multiplied. Barnabas uh, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, where they'd fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname is Mark. So there's something about this scene that causes the church to grow and multiply. But what is it about this climactic moment where Peter appears to the disciples that causes massive church growth? That is a good question. I wish I would have asked it. <laughs> So, before we answer that, what I'd like to do is to back up and take all of the evidence that we've assembled from the different layers okay, and go through it, because 
it starts being self-revelatory, if you will. Okay. Okay, so at the beginning, the big picture of you, the enemy of God, that is Herod, kills the disciple of Christ, that is James, mm -hmm. and throws another disciple into prison, wanting to wait until after the Passover to kill him. Now, does that sound just a little bit familiar? A death during or around the Passover and the leaders wanting to wait until after Passover to put somebody to death. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we may have mm -hmm. seen something like this before. All right. right. Going forth, though Peter is guarded by soldiers who are appointed to prevent his escape, yet an angel appeared in bright light and freed him while the soldiers were rendered incapacitated. Not only is Peter freed from the guards to whom he shackled, he also passed through two guard posts before walking through an iron gate that just miraculously opened by itself. Yeah. Yeah. Where have we seen an overkill of guards being <laughs> used to secure a single individual, that guarded person escaping, an appearance of an angel in bright light, and a large obstacle being moved to accommodate an escape? Yeah. I think we've seen this before. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, Peter miraculously is delivered and is followed by an appearance to the brethren who are terrified, meeting behind locked doors and mourning Peter's death. Mm. When they're told by a woman, that's Rhoda, that Peter is alive and stands at the door, they refuse to believe and are not convinced until they see him in the flesh. Peter tells his friends, go tell James and the brethren. Where have we seen something like this? Where have we yeah. seen the disciples meeting behind closed doors, grieving the loss of a loved one, refusing to believe that he is alive until they see him in the flesh, and then they're commanded to go and to tell others? Mm -hmm. yeah. as, as soon as it's daybreak, it's discovered that the one who was in prison is gone. There's this massive investigation, and on this occasion, they don't just warn or threaten soldiers, they put them to death. Things are escalating. Right. I think we've seen this before again. Uh-huh. And in the end, the enemy of God, who exalted himself to the position of God and attempted to defeat the gospel through the killing of God's sons, receives great defeat. Where have we seen an Exodus story in which the freeing of the central character results in the defeat of the Pharaoh type of an adversary. Mm. This well, is where you get your sermon title from. This is where we get it from. Uh, whenever you get to this moment, I, I can't help but think of the great philosopher Yogi Berra. He said, this is deja vu all over again. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yes. That's the point of this story. What Jesus, what God did for Christ, mm. Christ mm -hmm. is doing for Peter. What this God did for, let, let me repeat that. What God did for Christ, Jesus is doing for Peter. And uh, I'm connecting that to what you said at the very beginning, which is that the book of Acts should be about Jesus reigning. Yes. And so this narrative with Peter is more than just uh, re recalling what happened to him. But it's it's meant to teach me that uh, this was accomplished because Jesus is reigning. Yes. 
Aha. Uh -huh. And here's the application point and why I think this is such a critical story for the church in Acts 12, why it grows rapidly after this event, and why it's critical for us. What the church needed at that time during difficult days and persecution was to have the hope of the resurrection rekindled. Mm. Mm -hmm. They've been going very strong for a while, but now an apostle is killed, and another apostle, Peter, has been arrested, and he is good as dead. In fact, we think he is dead. But when they realize that the resurrection of Christ has become the resurrection of Peter, the church busts out again. There's tremendous church growth as the gospel goes forward. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Now, uh, you you then, I guess, wrap up your study with some application. And uh, it may be helpful for our listeners. Is there's probably some who are furiously scribbling notes as, as you're going through this. But um, take us through one last time in Acts 12. What are, what, what's the application of this? So I think there's two basic points of application for us. One, death and persecution should be an expectation of Christians. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes when we face persecution, we face it very mildly, mildly in this country. America. But when we face it, we sometimes get discouraged. And you have to realize this is just how the world turns. They hated Christ. They hated the apostles. Jesus promised, you will suffer persecution. Yeah. So we have to keep that in mind. One, we will suffer persecution. And number two, the resurrection is the guarantee for our faith. Mm-hmm. If we will keep the resurrection properly in focus, nothing else matters. Mm. Yeah. It makes me think about uh, Peter's own books, you know, the, the epistle of First and Second Peter, of all the times he talks about suffering and uh, what suffering, whenever one does it righteously, accomplishes for the kingdom. And uh, I, I can't help but think that this experience and others like it are influencing his writings, even though the Holy Spirit is obviously um, inspiring him. But I'm looking at his epistles with fresh eyes now, based on what I see in Acts 12. The, the uh, resurrection of Christ changed how Peter viewed life. Mm -hmm. And his own quote-unquote, resurrection, had a tremendous impact on the church. Okay, this is kind of an underlying plot. We talked about the reign of Christ being the theme of Acts. The reign of Christ is only made possible by the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And you cannot separate those two concepts. You can't separate the reign of Christ from the resurrection. So whenever we talk about resurrection in Acts, we are implicitly talking about the reign of Christ. When we talk about the reign of Christ, we're implicitly talking about the resurrection. That's why in every sermon in the book of Acts, you have those two concepts present, either explicitly or implicitly. 
Huh. Every sermon talks about resurrection, and the reason it does that is to emphasize that Christ reigns right now. That's the divine perspective on life. You've got some uh, on their, your final page, Acts 1, Acts 12, Acts 28, talking about Jesus reigning. And uh, why these three chapters? Why do you wrap up with the comparison of these three? I think these are kind of three focal points. In the beginning in Acts 1, the point is Jesus is making it to the, to the disciples. I will restore Israel. I reign as king. Go forth in my name and preach the gospel, spread the kingdom, conquer the world. In Acts 12, the king of physical Israel rises against Christ and he is crushed as Christ conquers Jerusalem and their king again. And then at the end of the book, in Acts chapter 28, I believe it's in verse 20, Paul, who is in prison, says, I'm in prison because of the hope of Israel. Mm -hmm. This concept of the restoration of Israel and the reign of Christ are intimately interlocked together, and they bookend and permeate the entire book of Acts as well as the book of Luke. Luke begins with the hope of the redemption of Israel, and it concludes with the hope of the redemption of Israel. You have to walk away with the prophetic conception of the redemption of Israel as fulfilled in Christ in both Luke and Acts. And that's that's your final scripture you have in your study is the very end of Acts, uh, verse 30 and 31. What What's special in those verses that provides it that bookend that you're talking about? He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This wants to end kind of, we don't know everything that, that happens after this in Acts, this kind of open-ended, and it points out Paul has two focuses. One, even though he's in prison, he is recognizing that Christ reigns, and he is doing what he was commissioned to do as an apostle, preaching the kingdom of Christ and the lordship or the reign of Christ. Yeah. It, mm. it ends where it begins. Mm-hmm. This is a side note, but it's important, especially in the Gospels and the book of Acts, to pay attention to how the writer begins their story and how they conclude their story, because the beginning and ending are related. Uh, just on a big scale note, the world begins in the presence of God in an Edenic state, and it ends in the presence of God in an Edenic state, Revelation. Mm -hmm. Bookends to the Bible, to the gospel, to the life of Christ, to the book of Acts. Bookends are tremendously important. Yes, they are. Uh, you have Luke twenty-one nineteen as a final scripture. By your patience, possess your souls. That's the Lord's final statement when he's telling them that they will suffer and die because of him. I mm. think that's an apt little phrase to keep in mind for both the apostles as they go through their ministry and us today. By your patience, possess your souls. You know, the last um, 
I don't know, nearly two years now, have brought with it a lot of different difficulties of various types. Yeah. A lot of challenges. And one of the reasons this is my favorite sermon to preach, and I preach it everywhere I go now, is because in in trying times, we need to be reminded of patience and what it means to possess our souls. Mm. And at the center of that concept has to be a view of Christ reigning and a hope of the resurrection. Mm. Well, brother, thank you very much for taking some time to talk with me. And I know our listeners will be grateful as well for the work you've put into this. It's tremendous. I'm, I'm excited for Acts 12 and uh, some of the new information that it has for me and others. And uh, I just want to say God bless you for the work you've done. And thank you for coming on today. I appreciate you having me on, Jonathan. And I hope that uh, this study, one, is a blessing and encourages people. That's what my intention is with it. And two, it gives some little tools to think about when you study narratives and yes. to pay attention to structure. Uh, how the story is told lends toward what the story is telling. I am very thankful for Nathan's time and his Bible study, and I hope that it was a blessing to you, listener, as much as it was to me. Uh, I had my Bible out. I took some notes in Acts 12 that I thought were very fruitful from the study that Nathan did, and I hope that you'll be able to do the same. Now, you can always go to the website and check out all of the free resources to download and use, and I hope that you have a blessed week, Lord willing. We'll see you back next time. Until then, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember that God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon.